the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and, on the hill, and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as the Rehob toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahaman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zone in Egypt when they reached the valley of Eskol. They cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, and there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does indeed flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of the Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites. They live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We, see, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider this narrative, we pray as always for insight and understanding in who you are and into who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we want to thank everyone for being here, and we do have Advent Hopers here in the building again, which is fantastic. And uh, we are, as you know, if you've been watching Zoom, we are preparing for that time when we will be both in Zoom, or on Zoom, and in person. Hi, Sylvia. That was a nice wave. A little shout out. We have, a, we have a nice group here, but we're waiting for that time when everyone can come back, and there'll be more information about how to register for June 26 soon. But we hope some of you will be here. But we also want to remind you that we will continue to be on Zoom, so we're not going to lose out on Zoom. Anyway, we are now at the beginning of our summer sermon series. Michelle got us started last week on this theme of fear, and uh, you can go and catch up on that uh, message at adventhope.org online. We finally got our sermons caught up there, so you can go to adventhope.org, and you'll find Michelle's 
sermon to kick off this series on this theme of fear and cowardice in the biblical narrative. Now, our, our introduction today, our text today, comes from Numbers chapter 13. And a little backstory to Numbers 13 is that God had promised this group of people, known as the Israelites, that he had a land for them. After spending 400 years in slavery in Egypt, he brought them out of slavery through all these miraculous circumstances with the promise that he had a place for them, that he was going to put them. And now they were almost at their goal. Literally, they could look off and see this land. And so, uh, as the story goes, God instructs Moses to get this team together of chieftains of, of the different tribes and to send them into the land for 40 days where they were going to camp and they were going to look at the land and see and all this description of what they were supposed to be looking for to see if the land was good. Now, despite God's promise and despite all that God had already miraculously done, the, the 10 of the 12, when they came back, they were persuaded that God could not do what he had promised, that the land was just, it was too much for them. Uh, they got a, gave a report that there were these giant people. We don't know if this was a, a, a legendary story or, or they misrepresented things or they were just using hyperbole, but they were scared of the people. They thought they were... They were giants. They were also scared of the land itself. It was the crossroads for the region, and there had been a lot of wars and battles there. We know that as a fact. And so they literally described the land as, as devouring people. And so they came back with this very frightening, this very scary message to the rest of the Israelite crowd. So you can imagine if the chieftains, if the leaders, if the, if the war leaders came back and the, the generals came back and are like, this land is terrible and the people are scary, how terrifying that would be to the people. But, but they were neglecting the fact that God had told them that he promised for them to have this land. And so it was with the sadness as we read on. We didn't read this, but if you continue on in Numbers, we hear the story that God punished these people. No one over the age of 20 was to enter into that land that he had promised, age of 20 at that, at that time. For 40 years, famously, they would wander in the desert, uh, waiting now to get the second chance to go back into this uh, promised land, this territory that was just, just over, the, over the hillside from them. They were so close and yet so far and were therefore kept out for 40, 40 years. It's a monumental failure of trust and a catastrophic lack of courage that we see here in the biblical story. And one of the great places to start as we continue this journey talking and thinking about uh, fear. Now, there's a lot of things we can get out of this uh, narrative. Uh, and first of all, again, right to it, the Bible is really not into, uh, into fear, that uh, fear is clearly not a thing that God is excited about. In fact, uh, we read in the New Testament in a couple places some really, really specific things about uh, fear and cowardice. In fact, consider this, this is Revelation chapter 21, and starting with uh, verse 1. This is uh, the Apostle John, and he is talking and seeing this vision. He's explaining this vision that God gives to him about the way things are going to be at the, uh, at the end of the age, the end of this earth. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then to the readers, he says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is an encouraging message John is talking about. He's seeing what is to come 
when all things are made new, when the earth is restored, and, uh, and after Jesus' return and beyond, and it's an exciting message. But then we continue reading in verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That is, <laughs> that is disturbing, right? So you have this picture of the, 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 the city that God is going to make in the new world, uh, but, and, and, and that God's people, they're going to be victorious, and they're going to take over this, but there's going to be a group of people that are not going to be a part of that, and the list starts with the cowardly. Okay, murderers, idolaters, liars even. Okay, I get that, but cowardly? It's on the Bible's vice list. In fact, Jesus himself talks about uh, being coward, being a cowardly. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, where we read Jesus in his own words saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Here, interesting enough, Jesus is like, hey, there is nothing to fear except there's, there's one fear, a healthy, holy fear for God who can actually destroy both body and soul in, in hell. That, be afraid. But other than that, have a healthy respect and fear for that. But other than that, there should be nothing that a follower of Jesus is afraid of. So it's the mandate of Jesus that the follower of Jesus will live a life without fear. Now, some of you are innately, or you lear you've learned to be pretty courageous. Uh, you've done some pretty bold things. In fact, in this time of pandemic, we've had a lot of courageous people and a lot of courageous actions, even here in our community. We have nurses and doctors who've exhibited extreme courage by just going to work each day. Public servants, people who have, who have given of themselves and and expressed and, and, and been bold and been courageous. And so we have a lot of people who have made courageous decisions in our community about careers, about relationship, about health. And so there is courage in our community of Avon Hope. There is courage in our, in our city here in New York. There is, is courage in our Zoom community. But I know that each of you, as courageous as you may have been in one aspect of your life, probably have some fear in your experience that is haunting you. Every one of us has something that is, 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 is holding us back, that brings hesitation and brings fear to our experience if you are, are human. I know that I do. And let's be honest, there has been a lot of things to be afraid of over the last few years. A lot of turmoil. We have been pandemic. We've had uh, injustice around the country and around the world. There are a lot of scary things going on. I mean, again, think of all the divisions in the world that, that we have right now fueled largely by fear, fear of loss of status, fear of other people, fear of the lack of economic well-being, fear of not having enough, fear that what we have will be taken away from us and that uh, what we don't have we will never have. There's a lot of fear driving uh, the, the sense of the world right now. Make a case that fear is ruling the world right now. And again, listen, the world is a scary place. But it's not any safer than the world was in the first century where Jesus lived and occupied 
uh, in an occupied territory, a foreign government was there. There was racism in the first century. There was economic strife. There was, again, foreign occupation. There were corrupt politicians. All of the scary things that we have now were around in Jesus' time. Maybe not all of them. They were not able to blow each other up in nuclear holocaust. But there were a lot of scary things in the first century, just like there are a lot of scary things in, in our age. And yet Jesus again commands his followers to live without fear, to live fearlessly. Don't worry about such things, Jesus said in his most famous sermon. He wants to spend time talking about fear in his most famous sermon. Don't worry about such things. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't your life more than food and your body more than clothes? Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't be cowardly. Live courageously. Living as a follower of Jesus means living fearlessly, standing up for what is right, even if that means you're alone, speaking out for the disenfranchised. This is what Jesus did, standing up for those who were treated unjustly, supporting those who are in financial need, even if you may have need yourself. Jesus' command to his followers is to live boldly, not fearfully. And yet, and yet, in reality, again, each of us holds on to some fear, which leads to our question today. Why? Despite all of these promises that God gives us, of all of the examples in our own lives and in the lives of others, in the, the, the narrative of the Bible, why, despite all of God's promises, do we still hold on to our fears? What's going on with us? Well, there are a ton of answers to this question, as, as always, but I have a few to share with you today. And firstly, you know, when faced with fearful things, we often focus on our own weaknesses. That's the first place we go. And this was the issue with the Israelites in the story in Numbers 13, right? Uh, but the, the men had said, this is the narrative in Numbers 13, but the men who had gone up with Caleb, so Caleb said, we can, take, we can do this. We can take this land. But then the, the other men, they, they retort. They come back and they say, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. So right away, they did a calculation. They were in the land for 40 days. They were supposed to be scoping things out, and they were there, and they were evaluating what was going on, and they did a calculation in their mind that there is no way we are going to take over these fortified cities. These people are huge. Their food, they're, they're eating all this healthy food, and they're muscular and strong, and they have their big cities, and it's a dangerous land anyway. There is no way, when we look at ourselves, that, uh, that we're going to be able to do this. They actually said we're like grasshoppers to them. So their initial reaction was to look at their own weakness, how weak they are. And look, we have a lot of weaknesses. I have a lot of weaknesses. And yet, despite our attempts to look like we've got it together, uh, those weaknesses are there. They're part of our experience. And the truth is that, really, when you get down to it, nobody on planet Earth has it all together. Even the people who have it, make it look like they have it together, as we found in the pandemic, we've had a lot of people who you'd think might have it together, and we find out, oh, oh, not so together. Story after story after story of people who look like they got it together, just not having it together. And so we are all messed up. We, none of us have it together. And so if we're going to look at our own weaknesses, we're always going to feel inadequate 
to the scary things that are around us. And so, we keep looking at ourselves and, and comparing ourselves, doing the math against the things of the giants that are, are, are against us, you're always going to feel inadequate, and that's always going to be a scary place, and so that causes us to hold on to our fear. Secondly, uh, we continue to fear. We hold on to our fear because we, if we're honest, we really, really don't believe God and his promises. There's an element there of not being completely sure. There's a sneaking suspicion that uh, many of us have that God, you know, he isn't really going to be able to come through when things get tough, or whether he can come through is an issue, but he might not come through, even though he promised it, that he's not that reliable. I mean, nobody, a, a follower of Jesus would not necessarily say that, but in practice, that's how we operate. Like, I'm not sure he's going to be able to come through, or he is going to come through. Again, consider those Israelites in, in numbers. They had seen God do a lot of amazing things. I mean, you, if you've read the story of Exodus, which is worth reading if you haven't, Exodus, Leviticus, number, Numbers. There are amazing things one after the other. One of the most dramatic is they get down and there is a sea in front of them and there are, there's an army behind them and God tells them, start walking in the, in the sea and the sea opens up and they walk across. Right? Great movie scene. They walk across the ocean. But that's just one scene of many. That happens again, by the way. And then they, they get food from, and they get water from places that you wouldn't normally get water, and God provides them over and over and over and over again. And yet still, with all of that evidence, when they get to the promised land that he promised, they're afraid to go in. And that's because there's an element down deep inside, a suspicion that God might not come through this time. And so I would suggest that we are often like those Israelites of long ago, that uh, when it comes down to really scary things, we're not sure that God is going to come through, and so we hold on to our, our fear. And that can make us act cowardly, do things that uh, affect other people because we need to be standing up for what's right, and, and instead we're running the other way. The Israelites of old, they weren't prepared to exercise their, their faith, their belief in God, and, and uh, we have this challenge too. I mean, I would imagine that you can resonate with this. There's somewhere in your life where you need to be a little bit more courageous and you need to step out and be bold, uh, but there's that fear that God is not going to keep his end of the bargain and that you're going to be left hanging out in the wind, and uh, that's terrifying. By the way, I think it's helpful to consider here the story again to note that God did instruct the Israelites to move into the land. So, you know... God could have just either chosen another territory where nobody already lived or made it so when they got to the border of the promised land, everybody had already been, been gone. They had already left. There was nobody there. So when the, the chieftains, the spies went over in the land, it was all prepared. And they were like, okay, blow the horn. We'll just march on in. But that wasn't the case. There were people there. And God was, so this is an expression of faith. you got to start moving into the land, and when you move into the land, then I'll open the doors for you. Right? Still wasn't on them to do it. He was just like, you got to move. Sometimes you got to get off the sofa, and you get off the sofa with that expression of faith that is rooted in action, and when that happens, God is enabled. You express faith. God is enabled to do what only he can do. And so that's the, the case for them. They, they had to go into the land. 
But they weren't even willing to take that, that step. They sat around and argued about how big these supposed uh, giants were. Sometimes we got to move forward. That's an expression of faith, and that enables God to be able to, to act. And so we're not sh- totally sure that God is going to do what he promised to do. And then finally, we hold on to our fear because we feel like maybe, maybe we have disqualified ourselves somehow from God being able to keep his promise for us. And this is the old sin of moralism. We operate under the premise that we are earning God's promises and that some little screw-up that we did at some point in the past, that maybe that disqualifies us from receiving God's promise. Now, you know that this is ridiculous if you've read the story of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, because these Israelites, they were messing up all the time. I mean, they were a complete mess. They were certainly not the, the, the model of perfection, right? They were arguing with each other. They were argue, arguing with their God-given leader of Moses. They were arguing with God himself, right? So they certainly did not earn the privilege of being able to go into the promised land, and yet God was willing to keep his promise to them even though they hadn't earned it. But, but we, we have a hard time with that. So we think to ourselves, have, have I disqualified myself from God's promises? And if you start thinking that way, of course you're going to live in fear because you're like, again, I'm not sure God can come through because maybe I've done something that would make it so that he can't come through. But that's not how it works, at least in the story of Numbers, right? These people were messed up and God was still bringing them to the promised land. The only issue for them was, do you believe that I will do what I promised to do and move forward. Their, their, their sin, their error was, was not believing, which we see over and over and over again in the Bible story. Jesus inviting people to believe in him, to trust in him. If you just believe in me, if you trust in me, I can do it. But if you're going to sit around and wonder and talk about whether I'm going to come through, then there's not much else I can do. The only thing that the Israelites did that disqualified them was not believing and having faith to move forward. They had, again, done a lot of terrible and annoying stuff up to this point, but God was still willing to bring them in to this promised land. And so we wrestle with all of these same things and we hold on to our fear. But there is good news. Uh, despite our inability to conjure up boldness and courage ourselves, and despite our tendency to hold on to our fears because of these reasons and others, there is hope that comes in the work of Jesus. That Jesus, God cares for us and is looking out for our best interests and wants us to succeed and wants us to live fearlessly. So there are, there are things that we can do. You know, there are strategies that we can do to, to, to be uh, courageous. Some great strategies for addressing a courage in your life. Uh, I went to the venerable site, and for our women in the crowd, you just bear with me, the art of manliness. I don't know, but it was a fun site, and they had some advice for us, all right? The art of manliness. I'm sure there's a lovely site. If not, we're going to create it. Sylvia, the art of woman, woman I can't even say it. Womanliness. Is that a word? I don't know. Anyway, we're creating it. But this was art of manliness. They wanted to be very manly. So this was their advice for dealing with this issue of of courage. 
Okay, are you ready for this? Buckle yourselves up. So, like, how are we gonna how are we gonna live more courageously? This is the art of manliness's suggestion. Change your perspective of fear. Write this down. This is this is change your perspective of fear. It sounds so easy. Just well, change your perspective. Here's their advice specifically. Instead of seeing the tackling of our fears as nerve-wracking, see it as an adventure. Oh, that's good advice. Where there's fear, just pretend it's an adventure. Now, I mean, there's some truth in this, right? That's a good strategy. Like, see your fears and, 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 and think of it as an adventure. An adventure is anything that takes you out of your comfort zone, according to the venerable friends at The Art of Manliness. Um, secondly, their suggestion is uh, change your perspective about risk. Hey, start thinking of fearful things as not being a big deal. You know, if you, if you fail, it's not a big deal. Okay, great advice. Thirdly, I love this one. Well, just act courageous. Basically, this is the principle of fake it till you make it. And so they offer a Teddy Roosevelt quote. This is from Teddy Roosevelt, famous manly man, apparently, supposedly. He says this, there were all kinds of things of which I was afraid of at first, ranging from grizzly bears to mean horses and gunfighters. But by acting as if I was not afraid, I gradually ceased to be afraid. There's Teddy Roosevelt on how, how to deal with uh, a fear. So, you know, some great strategies for us. Um, you know, the problem is, <laughs> I mean, you wrote these down, maybe. Act courageous, change your perspective on risk, change your perspective on fear. I mean, it sounds so easy, but in practice, I'm not sure this works real well. I mean, after you, oh, you're, you're facing a scary thing, you know, your finances aren't what they're supposed to be, and you're not sure if you can stay in your apartment. Ah, you know, just pretend it's an adventure. I'm not sure how that works when, when you, you've lost your job and you're scared about the next step, or you're in a relationship, you're not sure where you should be going. You're just like, ah, you know, enjoy the risk. These seem like they're not going to really solve the problem. Like, again, maybe helpful things for someone, but I don't think this is going to do it. So this leads us back to the question of, well, what hope we, do we have? And I think that that leads us back to the story of Jesus. Like, these are, are practical strategies that we can use, but I'm not sure that they're going to satisfy our real need. And, and if, if they did, by the way, wouldn't we all be fearless already if you just would fake it until you make it? It doesn't really work when we're confronted by the fears that many of us have experienced, but there is hope in Jesus, that in Jesus, we can be the kind of people that we aren't going to be on our own because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus did live without fear, that we have hope that we can live without fear as well. In Jesus, we have hope. We're told that Jesus faced one of the greatest fears, the fear of, of death with courage, with fearlessness, that he was presented before the religious leaders, the ones who would recommend whether he would live or, or die. And they asked him, are you the Messiah? And he could have shunned off the response to that, but he didn't. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus, in essence, was saying, not only him and I am the Messiah, but I am God himself. I'm going to sit at right hand of the Father. Jesus was bold. They asked him again, are you the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. And then they said, why do we need any other testimony? They knew exactly what he was saying. 
because Jesus was fearless in, 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 in telling them exactly who he was, testifying about God's work through him and who he was. And so because Jesus acted fearlessly, we have hope that we too can get some of Jesus' fearlessness. It's not something that we're going to be able to conjure up on our own through just acting fearless, just faking it till we make it. That may work at some level, but at some point you're going to be confronted with something so terrifying and so scary that faking it till you make it isn't going to be sufficient. And so Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He confronted the greatest fear of death with courage. And because of his courage, we can have courage too. Because Jesus has fulfilled God's commands, we have hope that in him we too can live lives without fear. Jesus wasn't just giving us, when he told us to live fearlessly, some challenge that we could never achieve on our own. He provides the means that we can achieve, achieve it. We can stand up for the disenfranchised. We can seek justice. We can live fully for God when we have overcome fear through Jesus. God doing in us what we cannot do for ourselves. When we confess faith in Jesus, Jesus' spirit is enabled to work within us and to overcome our fears and to act courageously and to be bold. God gives us peace despite the turmoil around us so that we can live with hope. You know, consider what Jesus did for his, uh, for his own disciples. He had those guys that were with him uh, day after day for three and a half years, but on the night that he was arrested, a scary night, they were so afraid. These are grown men who had been with him for three and a half years, who had seen what he could do. He was in a boat once, and there was a storm, and he got up in the boat, and he told the storm, told the storm to stop storming, and it stopped. But now, the night at which he was arrested, when the soldiers came up the path and they heard him, they all took off because they were terrified and they were scared. Peter is one of his most outspoken supporters. You know, you know if you read this story, you know the story. Peter, one of his most outspoken supporters, he took off, but he was interested in what was happening because he cared about Jesus, and so he kept showing up at different places. But, but then somebody would identify him as being a follower of Jesus, and he was so terrified that he lied about each time, and in the end, he came to a child. And the child identified him as being a follower, and he was terrified of the child. Which is Susanna's just running down the thing. Susanna's asking him, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? There's your moment to testify. Yes, I am a follower of Jesus. And Peter, big guy, boisterous guy, terrified, scared of a, of a child. He lies to the, the child. You, you, again, you know the story if you've read it. But what's most interesting about the story of Peter and all the disciples is what happens a couple days later. They go from these terrified guys who are running away at the sound of the footsteps of the soldiers to, to, to men who, after the death of Jesus and after the resurrection of Jesus, are completely transformed into people who, it would seem, are almost fearless. They're, it's like a new people. This is Acts chapter 4 and verse 8, talking about Peter, the same Peter who was terrified at the little child who asked him if he was a follower of Jesus. A couple of days later, we read that Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the religious leaders, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, they had healed a man. 
And so that, that had, 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 had created some, some interest. If we are being called to an account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under the heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they, the, the religious leaders, they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary people, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Here are these guys who just a few days before scattered when the footsteps of the soldiers were heard, now had courage, now acted boldly, now were fearless. What had happened? Jesus had died. Jesus had risen again. They had confessed faith in Jesus, and the Spirit was inside of them. Consider also these words of Peter. He wrote later in one of his letters. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. This is a man who, remember, he knew about fear. He felt shame because of his fear. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, you uh, your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So here's Peter now, this guy who has a testimony. He was a fearful and afraid man who had been transformed through the life the death, the resurrection of Jesus and God's spirit inside of him, and now he had boldness so that he could tell all of us, be bold too, because Jesus has died and risen again. And Jesus is longing to give us his spirit of boldness so that we can live lives of fearlessness. Now, we should note here that Peter is not saying that we're going to be rescued from all suffering. In fact, there's going to be suffering, but that Peter is articulating that God is going to rescue us from the fear of suffering, which is kind of worse. I mean, I, I don't know. Suffering sounds terrible, but there's nothing like being afraid of suffering. And so God is saying, I can take away that fear. Like, you may still face turmoil, but I can take away the fear, and you can live fearless lives. You may still have rough times, but you can live those rough times with courage and boldness and fearlessness. So as we continue on this journey, wrestling with this subject of fear, a, a subject that has such a grasp on humanity, it seems, right now, when everybody is afraid of something, this message of living fearlessly is a challenging one, but we have the hope that we don't have to do this on our own, that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and he's inviting us to step forward and to believe in him so that he can give us boldness and courage 
and fearlessness that we do not have on our own. And so may he do this in you and may he do this in us that, he, that we may become the kind of community he's calling us to be. Amen.